Madam Father, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for the blessing that I enjoy just in uh, preparing for this and then having this kind of interaction. Lord, I pray that for these friends, um, there would be a genuine uh, fruitfulness and reward in this study uh, that we would see Jesus more clearly and just appreciate the um, richness that the um, four texts provide for us. We thank you for them and we look to you in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, yeah, what I want to do today <coughs> is uh, look at what I would just call sort of the approach to Jerusalem that brings us to what we know as the triumphal entry. Um, but we'll actually look at the, the entry itself next week. Uh, I, I think it's really fascinating to see these um, four Gospels kind of come together in this period of approach to Jerusalem. Much of the second half of these Gospels is is framed, as we've seen, by Jesus' intention to go to Jerusalem, his predictions that he will be going there, that he will be killed, um, and that he will rise from the dead. What I want to try to do then is give a bit of a sort of an overview, see if we can kind of remember where we've been, the picture we've seen, and then um, watch the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, kind of come together and lead us into Jerusalem, and then add John's Gospel. And then finally, um, have a particular uh, specific look at this dinner and the anointing of Jesus in anticipation of his burial. Um, so first, I just kind of, kind of want to go back and, and let us catch up um, with what we've been doing, which is we've picked up after Peter's profession of faith and the transfiguration, and we've moved forward from there toward this entry into Jerusalem. In Matthew, we are in chapters, we've been in chapters 16 to 20. In Mark, we've been in chapters um, 8 and then 9 and 10, the end of chapter 8 and 9 and 10. And then in Luke, we've been in a much longer uh, section from chapter 9 all the way through chapter 19. Um, just It'd be good to just get a Bible open and just kind of page through it and kind of see the sequence. Um, you really need a Bible for this one. So if you haven't gotten one, grab it. And open first to Matthew 16. We've got the profession of faith, and this, this is all to see movement toward Jerusalem. So in Matthew 16, 21, we've got the first indication that Jesus Christ begins to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. After that, we have the transfiguration and another uh, statement in chapter 17, verse 22. Uh, while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus says to them, the son of man is going to be delivered up into the hands of men. They will kill him and he will be raised again on the third day. Um, we uh, then go through these few chapters of Matthew um, in chapter 20. We will again see the reference to going to Jerusalem, chapter 20, verse 17. Um, as Jesus was going about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered up to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death 
and will deliver him up to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Now that that reference in verse 18 of we are going up to Jerusalem um, seems to be a much more immediate reference. This this then follows or this then leads directly into um, the movement up to Jerusalem. We have just this episode that Matthew records of the sons um, of Zebedee, John and James, wanting to know if they can sit at the places of honor. And then by the end of chapter 20, you'll see Matthew takes takes us through Jericho to go up to Jerusalem. So let's just look at that. Um, Verse 29, as they were going out from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. Behold, two blind men were by the road and hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And again, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. David, Jesus stops what do you wish me to do for you? He asks, and they say, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and we have the record of, of them going to get the, the donkey for Jesus to ride on in what will be his big entry into Jerusalem. Um, just the little geography there. Um, where Jericho is just north of the Dead Sea on the west bank of Jordan River. Um, and, and so you, you ascend the Dead Sea is, is, is significantly below sea level. And so you literally go up to Jerusalem and almost from almost any direction. You certainly do from Jericho. So from Jericho, you're going up through this very steep valley with very steep sides on the valley. And you come up on the east side of Jerusalem. And as you come toward Jerusalem from the east, you'll first come to a little village called Bethany. And then adjacent to Bethany will be a little area, village or area called Bethphage. And then that's adjacent to the Mount of Olives. And from the Mount of Olives, you'd go down through uh, Gethsemane and into the old city of Jerusalem, right near where the temple would have been located. Okay, so you're coming up from the east, Bethany comes first, and then within a matter of thousands of feet or a couple of miles at the most, we're, we're really in very close proximity here, Bethany, Bethphage, Mount of Olives, and into the city. Um, in Matthew, and then Mark and Luke as well, we'll have the story of Jesus coming up toward Jerusalem, going through Jericho, and and then uh, heading up to Jerusalem, and then the reference will be particularly to Bethphage, and sometimes it's referred to as Bethany and Bethphage, but it's at Bethphage where we have this little story of Jesus telling the disciples to get the donkey, and then he rides it on in. Um, in um, Mark, then, we have a very similar, oh, the, the one other thing I would point out is that in Matthew 19, at the very beginning, uh, verse 1 of chapter 19 in Matthew, um, you'll see a reference that when he finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Um, Mark will have a similar notation in verse 1 of chapter 10, and it gives you a picture of Jesus in this period, initially in Galilee and then moving down into Judea and in that context, Jerusalem, of course, 
and then also down near the Jordan River, including going across the Jordan. Okay. So flip over to Mark. And we're in chapter um, eight initially, where you have in verse 31, the first reference to being uh, heading to Jerusalem. It doesn't say Jerusalem specifically, but it's a prediction of his death. Um, Again, you'll have it in chapter nine, verse 31. Um, including a reference to the fact that they are going through Galilee at this point, um, teaching his disciples that uh, he will uh, be killed and raised again. Um, in chapter 10, verse 1, you have the reference to them heading down toward Judea and to the area uh, beyond Jordan. And then in the end of chapter 10, you'll have the same picture that we just had in Matthew, in chapter 10, verse 32, um, they are on the road going up to Jerusalem. This is, again, the sort of more immediate, really now we are going up to Jerusalem for this final week. Jesus is going on ahead of them, and the disciples are amazed. They're following with fear because the hostilities are intense enough that this is where you have that sense of we are going with him to die with him. He takes the 12 aside, tells them what is going to happen and says, we're going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be delivered up. They will condemn him to death and deliver him up to the Gentiles. Um, He will be killed and three days later rise from the dead. Once again, we get this little thing with John and James. And then um, in verse 46, the same picture of coming through Jericho. As he was going out of Jericho, there's a blind beggar. Mark names him as Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. Bartimaeus means that, son of Timaeus. He's sitting by the side of the road. So we have the same picture of him calling out and being healed of a blind person being given sight just on the eve of the trip into Jerusalem should not be missed, the significance there. Um, But it's interesting. Matthew, as he often does, has two blind men being healed. Uh, Luke will also have this this episode without naming the man, and then Mark gives us his name, uh, Bartimaeus. And then chapter 11, um, we are approaching Jerusalem, um, going through Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, and you have the story of going to get the donkey. Um, then Luke, again, just quickly go to Luke chapter 9. We have the, um, uh, the, the profession of faith of, of, of Peter, um, the transfiguration at the end of chapter nine, and again, predictions of Jesus going to Jerusalem to die. The most notable one here is in chapter nine, verse 51, which is additional to what we've seen in the other two. Um, in verse 51, uh, it says, when the days were approaching for his raising up and your translations will render that either as his being lifted up with a sense that that's about the cross or his ascension um i i'm inclined to think of it as a lifting up um like this the serpent on the cross that this is a this is a, a reference to the to the crucifixion um and then that he resolutely sets his face to go to jerusalem this following up on, of course, the Moses, Elijah, Jesus exchange about Jesus's exodus, which he is about to complete in Jerusalem. 
Um, what you then have is not just a very quick movement into Jerusalem, but we get this eight, eight or nine chapters where Luke develops things um, between this moment and the actual entry into Jerusalem. Um, won't go into any detail on any of that. I'll, I'll only say that I think um, there's a question then of sort of how this matches up against the Matthew-Mark uh, accounts. And and it's interesting that both Matthew and Mark give a picture of beginning in Galilee and then a general movement into Judea and down toward Jordan and Jerusalem. I think Luke gives us a similar kind of a, of a picture where he starts us up in Galilee. Um, but pretty quickly, you get the impression that most of what's going on in Luke from about chapter 10, at least, all the way through um, to chapters 18 or 19 is either in or around Jerusalem in Judea. Um, and at the same time, there's a lot of movement. Um, remember, Israel's not that big. Um, it's, a uh, you know, from Nazareth to Jerusalem is, uh, what, 160 kilos, uh, um, a hundred, hundred miles. Um, you, you can walk that in a couple of weeks with no problem. Um, you, you can move from north to south and east to west in Israel walking quite easily. Um, if, if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, do it. Um, if you have already, great. Um, in my young and crazy days, I got to do it and, for, and spent three weeks and did a lot of walking and, and, and it is a very rich experience to do. Um, but it's clear you can, you can travel a lot of, cover a lot of territory on foot and Jesus obviously did. So there, there's movement, but it is interesting in chapter 10, for instance, at the end of chapter 10, remember he visits Mary and Martha in their home and Luke just says in a certain village, he visited them. John's gospel will place them in Bethany just outside of Jerusalem. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that's where they were when Jesus visited them, but it's highly likely that that's where they would have been. We're, we're within months um, of, uh, of these two events. So you've got that very likely near Jerusalem. There's a tremendous amount in Luke's narrative that has to do with Pharisees. Um, and while that could take place in a lot of different places, there are references that imply a lot of Pharisees present or a leader of the Pharisees is where he's having dinner. Um, and, it, and you get this kind of Jerusalem temple authority community kind of picture, I think, in that process. Um, there's also the interesting uh, reference in chapter 13, verse 31, where the Pharisees themselves, some of them who are more sympathetic, and there were sympathetic Pharisees, remember, they're warning Jesus, Herod's after you, get out of here. Obviously, we're, we're probably somewhere near Jerusalem in that. And that's followed immediately by, by Jesus's lament over Jerusalem, in which he addresses Jerusalem directly as if he were across the valley looking, looking over at the city itself. Um, so there's a lot of that sort of thing. And so I'd, I'd be inclined to say that, you know, much of Luke 10 to 18 would be parallel to that very brief section we get after Matthew 19.1 and Mark 10.1, where they both have Jesus heading down toward Judea. Meanwhile, there are other references to Jesus passing through the villages and towns. Um, there are references um, to him, 
in being in Galilee on the border of Galilee and Samaria in chapter 17. Um, and so there's a picture of wandering and, and that's helpful partly in anticipation of John's gospel, which will give us a lot of Jerusalem uh, episodes and narrative centered there, which without Luke's narrative, you, you kind of might wonder, but, but now it kind of makes more sense that there, that Jesus was in and out of Jerusalem. Uh, through through much of that period between the transfiguration and his ultimate entry into Jerusalem for the uh, triumphal entry. Then, remember, we see the three Gospels coming back together again. Um, it starts with the young children being brought to Jesus, the young rich ruler asking the question, and then each of the three Gospels will have a, a couple of distinctives, um, Luke per, uh, particularly um, has the story in Jericho of uh, Zacchaeus, but all three of them will bring us uh, through Jericho and up into um, Jerusalem. In Luke, then, we get that. Um, in chapter 18, verse 15, we have where Luke and Matthew Mark rejoin. The babies and young children are being brought to him in verse 18. The young ruler comes with his question. Um, and then um, in verse in chapter 19, we have Jesus now uh, heading toward um, Jerusalem. And, um, and actually, it starts back in chapter 18. I'm sorry. Um, and, I'll, and I'll go back just a further step. Chapter 18, verse 31. Jesus takes the 12 aside and again says to them, we're going up to Jerusalem. Um, and this will, this will parallel what we just read in Matthew and Mark. And then we go directly through Jericho. And so, um, verse 35, as he was approaching Jericho, a certain blind man was sitting by the road begging. Uh, Jesus heals him. It's clearly the same episode, um, as we've seen in Mark and Matthew. And then, uh, he's healed in verse 43. And as he entered and was passing through Jericho, we have the story of Zacchaeus. In verse 11, then, um, we are heading on up. We get one more little parable. And in verse 28, after he said these things, he's going ahead, ascending into Jerusalem. Um, and in verse 29, he approaches Bethphage and Bethany. Um, and then you get the story of going and getting the donkeys. Um, let me just throw in one little comment. Uh, you may have noticed, although it would be hard to notice this detail, given everything I'm dumping on you right now. But in Matthew and Mark, the uh, the story of the healing of the blind man takes place as he's leaving Jericho. and in Luke, it takes place as he is entering Jericho. Um, if you've done much study of these things or been online or been in a New Testament class at the university or whatever, this is one of the classic contradictions of Scripture that makes it clear that we can't trust these documents and should not trust these documents um, because the authors are confused and really don't know what they're talking about, and they're probably making it up anyway. Um, I, I hesitate to get into these things too much in this class, but but it is worth an occasional pause, I think, to 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 just say um, 
something like this should not throw you. Um, and, it, and if anything, these kinds of differences suggest to me um, exactly the kind of thing you would expect where there is integrity in the records rather than where there is either deception or mistakes or misunderstandings. Um, you don't have to be terribly creative to imagine perspectives in which um, you would say something like this the way Matthew and Mark do, or you would say it the way Luke does. Um, just to give you a simple, silly little illustration. If my friend from South Carolina is coming to visit, and he comes down through Jacksonville and then down 301 and across university, the, through Gainesville by way of university, and just as he is um, leaving the city limits of Gainesville on his way to visit me for the beginning, for the, for the, for a three day visit, he has a flat tire. Um, depending on just how you're talking about it, whether it's me or somebody I told who then is telling a friend, you might say about that person that it was as he was, as he was coming to Gainesville to see me, he had a flat tire. You might also say, as he was just leaving Gainesville to see me, he had a flat tire. It, 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 there's sort of a question of whether you're emphasizing that it's happening just as he's he's coming to visit me. And so then the emphasis is on he's coming to Gainesville or coming through Gainesville to see me. But if you want to point out the irony of him being three minutes away from me because I live just, just outside the city limits of Gainesville, and you go, oh, too bad. He went, he, he drove for eight hours and in the last five minutes of his trip, he had a flat tire. Then you emphasize, and just as he was coming out of Gainesville and almost at my home, he had a flat tire. I, all, all I'm saying is, and, and I will say it's been helpful to me, both reading the gospels and reading some pragmatist thinkers and Pascal and other people who, who help, who help to show narratives are always told from a particular perspective. And there are frameworks in place. They are legitimate. Issues of truth and falsehood still apply. But but for there to be this kind of a difference in the telling of the story, to me, suggests more integrity to the telling than it does question the integrity of the telling. You can make of that what you will. But but I, I just pause there long enough to at least say that. If for no other reason than to deal with my own exasperation and occasionally pulling something up online and doing a search on something and, and there are these people who are just so eager to find reasons for not believing that they will find them and, and this will be their, you know, the kind of thing that they really draw on. If you ever want to talk about such things, glad to do it. Um, but I thought I'd just throw that little one in there, but to get back to the main storyline, we see all three Gospels leading Jesus up to Jerusalem um, and all three of them coming through Jericho. And then when they get up to Jerusalem, the little story about Bethphage. Um, any questions on any of that before we just add John and then move to um, a couple things that John brings up for us? Let's go ahead and go to John then. As we've seen, we've been in John here recently, and we've seen that uh, as chapter 7 opens up, we are in Galilee. But very quickly, we're going to move to Jerusalem. 
first with the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, and that's chapter 7 and 8. Chapter 9, it seems pretty clear we stay in Jerusalem for the healing of the blind man and the interaction there with the temple authorities and the question of being banned from the temple uh, area. Um, chapter 10, Jesus presents himself as the good shepherd. Um, no location given for that. Um, but by the middle of chapter 10, we are clearly in Jerusalem. And we are at the Feast of Dedication in verse 22. And it is now winter. Um, by the end of chapter 10, there is enough hostility and tension that Jesus gets out of town. Verse 39, they were seeking him to seize him. He eludes their grasp. Verse 40, heads again beyond Jordan to the place where John had originally been baptizing. People were coming out and many believed in him there. Then we get this additional material in John's gospel. And not sure, you know, you want to be careful about the timelines, but it would seem um, that Jesus's movement in and out of Jerusalem and being there for these feasts in fall and winter, and then we'll get to Passover in the spring, I think does fit together with Luke's picture of of this kind of movement and and of a lot of it being done in Judea and environs of Jerusalem. Um, so now what we've got then is Jesus hears about Lazarus, his dear friend who is sick. We've got this interesting comment in verse two that Lazarus's sisters were Mary and Martha, and it's the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, though we won't get to that story until the next chapter. Lazarus is sick. Jesus learns, chooses to delay. Then when he does go up, tells his disciples in verse 14 that Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. At this point, the tension is such that Thomas says, let's go with him and we will die with him. They get to Bethany, which is near Jerusalem. This identifies it as two miles off. Um, that's at the most. Um, sort of, I think it sort of depends on what you're measuring in Jerusalem as to, as to even whether it's that far. Um, and a lot of people have come out. Mary and Martha are dear to many people, Lazarus. Martha meets him. And I'm so glad we've got this in John. Most of us, when we think of Mary and Martha, Think of Mary as the one who sat at Jesus's feet and Martha as the one who was distracted by many things. Um, my wife will occasionally refer to herself as being a Martha who just, you know, busy, busy doing, doing. And I, and I, and I love to remind her, well, be sure to read John 11 because I think you are a Martha. Um, she has tremendous insight. Uh, her testimony here is as clear as any of Jesus's followers at this point. Um, don't, don't miss that. Verse 21, Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then she says, but even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give her, give you. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Martha says, 
I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You see, see, Martha's got insight. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She says to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of God, even he who comes into the world. What a wonderful testimony. What a, what a wonderful picture of Martha's faith. She has sat at Jesus's feet and, and she knows. Now, um, he comes, now Mary comes out as well. Again, verse 32, if you'd only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus is deeply moved here. Mary's crying. Jews are, you have come out and her friends are crying. And in verse 33, he's deeply moved in spirit and deeply troubled. And then this is just an extraordinary moment. Where have you laid him? He asks. And they go and show him and he cries. It's so striking. I mean, he knows what he's about to do, but the brokenness and the sorrow it moves him as well. He's moved in verse 33. He cries in verse 35. He is deeply moved in verse 38. And then he says, verse 39, remove the stone. Yeah. Martha says, Lord, it'll smell bad by now. It's been four days. Jesus says to her, did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. They remove the stone. Jesus then raises his eyes and speaks to his father. I know you hear me, but I'm saying this out loud right now so that they can hear that you hear me and believe that you have sent me. And then in verse 43, he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out. Many believe Others uh, just go, uh, what's going on here? And they run and tell the chief priests and the scribes and Pharisees. You then get this kind of prophetic passage of Caiaphas. One person needs to die for the nation, and we know who that one person is. And from verse 33, 53 on, they're resolute in killing him. Verse 54, Jesus is no longer able to walk publicly in Jerusalem. And so he goes out again from Jerusalem to a city called Ephraim and stays there with his disciples. We're we're going north, northeast from Jerusalem, a safe distance. um, And he spends some time there. And then chapter 12, verse 1, the Passover is drawing near. And six days before the Passover... Jesus comes up to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And they have a dinner for him there. Lazarus is at the dinner and Mary takes this pound of ointment and anoints Jesus's feet, wipes them with her hair. Judas is upset by it. Wants to know why it wasn't sold and given to the poor. Jesus says, leave her alone in order that she may keep this for the day of my burial. 
the poor you will always have with you, and by implication you should always care about them. But you do not always have me. People now, both because of what's happened with Lazarus and because of Jesus being there, they're going crazy for Jesus. Um, and the chief priests are ready to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus. And then um, verse 12, we have the movement of Jesus into Jerusalem and the people greeting him. So you kind of insert Bethphage in there and getting the donkey exactly when it happens or whether they Jesus tells them where to go to get the donkey one day and they do it the next or just, you know, but that that's all happening right in here. But what we've got is the three synoptics bringing um, Jesus into Jerusalem, primarily by way of Jericho and then Bethphage and John bringing Jesus into Jerusalem, um, primarily by way of Bethany. Um, and, and sort of then supplementing the narratives that we have in the synoptics. Um, you get this dinner episode then, and I want to spend our remaining um, 10 or 12 minutes on that. Um, but let me just ask any questions that that raises or, or do you, are we seeing the big picture? Um, is it making sense? And let me say, Pierce and Ed, good to have you both in as well. Um, welcome. Um, then the handout that I sent you this morning, um, and Ed, you are, you are new to this. Um, I'd be glad to have you on your list. Let me know, shoot me an email or something and, and let me know if you do want to uh, join this and I'll make sure you get things like the handouts. Um, but the handout this morning is basically this passage in John chapter 12. Verses 1 to 11. And then two other passages that are anointings of Jesus. And the question is whether we've got one, two, or three episodes in front of us. Same or different. And sort of what difference does it make? But we're thinking about. Okay, so let's start. I just sort of read through the John 12, 1 to 11. We got it clear. We're six days before the Passover in Bethany. Um, There's a dinner. It's easy to think that it would be at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home, though that is not actually specified. What I love is Martha is serving, and rightly so. I I love her getting affirmed here for for serving. Um, Lazarus is at the table. And Mary does this really um, uh, exorbitant act. It is um, a very expensive perfume. We're, we're talking about what would be probably something along the lines of tens of thousands of dollars or something in our, in our current setting. I mean, you should, you should have a sense that, oh my word, this is really extravagant. This is, this is way over the top what she's doing here. Um, and, um, it's, it wasn't just Judas who was struggling with goodness. That's a lot of perfume. That's a lot of expense. Um, 
And Jesus's interpretation of it is that this is being done for the day of his burial in anticipation of his burial. The sort of perfumes that would have been used in preparation of a body in death. Judas goes from there. Um, John says he's already intending to betray Jesus. And John says Judas isn't just concerned about the poor. He happened to dip into the, into the pot. Um, this is from a much later perspective on John's part. And, and he sees Judas in these terms. Um, then look at Matthew 26. Um, and, and there's a parallel passage in Mark, but we'll just use Matthew's account. They're very similar. Um, now we are in the final week, sort of midweek, and um, we're told in verse 2 that, uh, that they're two days away from Passover when the Son of Man will be handed over for crucifixion, Jesus says. At that time, the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the courtyard of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to arrest Jesus covertly and kill him. Trying covertly is the key word here because they were struggling with the fact that Jesus is a very popular guy at this point. They've just had the triumphal entry and they're trying to figure out how can we do this and pull this off. So they're saying we're not going to do it during the feast. Otherwise, a riot might occur among the people and we'd be in deep trouble. And then we get this. When Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very expensive perfume, and she poured it on his head as he was reclining reclining at the table, at, at, at the meal. The disciples were indignant when they saw it and said, why this waste? This perfume could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Jesus, aware of this, says to them, uh, please don't bother this woman. Why are you doing it? She's done a good thing. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. When she pours this, poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for my burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to hand him over to you? They said, Here's 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment on, Judas looked for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Same episode or different? What do you think? I think it's probably the same one. Facts are a little different, but the, the, the message isn't, is the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just certainly Jesus's interpretation of what's happening, um, and disciples response are similar. Differences include, uh, six days before the Passover and two days before the Passover. What either, what other differences or additional elements do you see in one or the other? So in John, it says that she anointed his feet. And then in Matthew, it says it was his head, mm-hmm. which seemed like two very different, especially knowing what we know about feet in that culture. It seems like two very different ones. Mm-hmm. The feet and the head is, an, is, an, is a striking difference. 
Jesus in verse 12 of Matthew refers to her anointing or pouring the perfume on his body, which may suggest more than just one part of his body. Um, but still, the, that difference is, is as striking as any difference in here, I think. Other differences? Anything strike you? We're given a specific location in Matthew. We're at the home of Simon the leper. So he's identified and the woman doing the anointing is not. It, it is interesting that it is John who gives us by far and away the fuller picture of Mary, Martha and, and their brother Lazarus. Um, Luke gives us the, the little account of Mary and Martha and Jesus's visits. Um, Matthew and Luke and Mark, I do not think ever mentioned them by name. I, that I want to check and you might want to check me on it. Um, and there's speculation about this, but I think it's not unreasonable to think that given this comment that the temple authorities are, are ready to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus. Lazarus being raised from the dead right outside the walls of Jerusalem is a serious public relations problem. Um, and, and the idea that they would be kept kind of anonymous um, in the uh, earlier gospel writings is not crazy. Um, and that John writing decades later um, can safely go ahead and tell these stories uh, is again not crazy that we would have that difference. Um, so, so we don't have Mary identified. We don't have Lazarus present in the Matthew account. We do know that it's now at the home of Simon the leper, um, which we didn't know in John's account. It is at least compatible. Interesting question. Let me just add Luke seven and because we are going to run out of time. Um, but, but, and then see if we can just pull this together a little bit. Um, back in Luke seven, we've got a dinner in a home of another Simon, but this seems to be pretty clearly a different Simon. This is Simon of Pharisee. Verse 36 in Luke, one of the Pharisees invites him over for dinner. And what happens is we've got a woman of the city who is a sinner. Basically, she is known to be a prostitute, it would seem. She learns that Jesus is there. She gets in somehow and very quietly slips up to Jesus with an, with a vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She wets his feet with her tears. She wipes them with the hair of her head, kisses his feet and anoints them with a perfume. The Pharisee is offended. Says, my word of this man knew. He would not let this happen. And Jesus responds, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he tells the story of the two debtors, the one who owes much, the other who owes little. Um, which, which one will be more grateful? The one who owes much, Simon says. Jesus says, yes, you're right. Verse 43. And turning to the woman, uses her as the example for us all. You, you have not done any of this for me, but from the beginning, she's been washing my feet with her tears, anointing them with her perfume. So verse 47, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. The one who's forgiven little loves little. And then he says to her, your sins are forgiven. 
And those who are with him say, what? Who is this who even forgives sins? And he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Um, pretty clearly a different episode, I think. We're safe in that. An earlier episode. And the interpretation of what's happening here is not an anticipation of Jesus's burial. It is the forgiveness of sin to a repentant, broken sinner who is anointing Jesus's feet in, in contrition with tears. And so here we have the sinful woman labeled that, seeing herself that way, Jesus seeing her that way and forgiving her. It's just, it's just this wonderful picture of mercy and, and of, and of coming to Jesus. I want to suggest that this background is very important for what Mary does at the dinner in Bethany and that Mary is acting on precedent here. She knows this story and she is coming to Jesus's feet and head um, in acknowledgement that Jesus is Messiah as her sister Martha has professed and Mary would have shared the view. And, and thus there is an anointing of Jesus fully, probably an anointing of his head and their Messiah is in view, but it's an anointing of his feet as well. And there Mary, the sinner is coming to Jesus in contrition and, and to receive his mercies. And then Jesus wraps it all up into, and this is for my burial. But, but that picture of Mary doing this with this other woman in view as setting a precedent for Mary's own self-understanding, I think matters here. And then Jesus, and then, and then I think the Matthew 26 episode is the same one. Um, it's inserted where Matthew and Mark insert it because the issue there is getting Judas, the, the, the temple authorities need somebody, some way to get to Jesus. How does that happen? Judas agrees to betray and comes to them. I'll give him to you. And, and Matthew and Mark insert the critical moment for Judas in that decision as being the dinner in Bethany. It's easy to think it happens two days before the Passover, but it, but, but really it doesn't say what it does do is identify the dinner in Bethany where Judas walks away going, I'm ready to turn this guy over. And, and because it's that decisive moment in Judas's story and Judas is the decisive person in the story of the temple authorities, Matthew and Mark insert that story where they do. But I think John comes along later and locates that episode where it probably actually happened chronologically. I'm not going to push that too hard, but, but I'm, I'm inclined to see it that way. And, and then if I am right, I'll, I'll just point out, you got a pretty remarkable dinner party. It's at the home of Simon the leper for crying out loud. He ain't a leper no more because he wouldn't still be if he's having a dinner party, but he's known as Simon the leper. So it's not a great stretch to go. This is one of the lepers that Jesus healed and the healed leper is still known as Simon the leper, glad to wear the label, just like everybody else who's ever come to Jesus and said, yeah, I'm a needy, needy person. I am blind. I need healing. 
So it says Simon the leper is hosting the dinner. And, and I, and I'd love to be there for the person who maybe is invited to this thing and, and is kind of a little clueless, just got to town or something. And, and they go, Oh, Simon, Simon the leper. Yeah. Oh, that's it. What's your story, Simon? And Simon tells him the story and the guy goes, wow, wow, that's amazing. And then Mary or Martha says, well, you want to hear a really good story? Talk to my brother. Um, and, and Lazarus is at this dinner. So we got one guy who's healed from leprosy, another guy who's been raised from the dead, and Jesus is sitting there having dinner with him. Uh, you know, no wonder things are going crazy, and and it is just exploding. And now that you have this entry into Jerusalem, and people are thronging and and really excited, um, but you also have this grim reality that Judas leaves that dinner, really just uh, that did it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back for Judas. And he's going to the temple authorities and saying, oh, I'm ready to give this guy up. What, whatever Judas's motives were been and it would, would be, and I, and I want to be careful in our judgments at Judas. Um, it, but, it, but it's the breaking point. And, and so it comes into the other narratives in Matthew and Mark at the point in the story where um, Judas is the critical point for the temple authorities to get where they're trying to get. The dinner was the critical point in bringing Judas to the point uh, that he got to. But meanwhile, um, we've got that dinner in view in both cases, and we've got the precedent of Luke 7. And I think when you put that all together, you get one of these wonderful examples of the richness that we end up with by having four gospel accounts instead of just one or even two. Um, and it's, it's really quite remarkable. We are, of course, a few minutes over, but um, uh, so be it. Uh, glad to pause or hang around for a while, talk with anybody about anything. Um, but your thoughts are very welcome at this point. I have a little question from your analogy about like the prepositions, I guess, of mm-hmm. through or to or leaving or whatever. The example you gave of your friend coming to Gainesville to see you. And how changing it kind of changes the emphasis of it. That to me, yes, explains why that might be a discrepancy in the story. But you said for you, it kind of strengthens the credibility of it instead of emphasizing a discrepancy. So how for that do you see it strengthening the Um, argument? um, Because it suggests um, sort of... That, that, that we're talking about the normal way language works and we're talking about the normal way that humans see things and record them and narrate them. Um, if, if there were a kind of wooden retelling of the story mm-hmm. in these gospel accounts, I think it would, it would raise it, uh, raise questions about the accounts yeah. where, where you have the kind of um, eyewitness accounts and and secondhand accounts, which and we have both going on in the Gospels, um, that that just they, they sound more like what you would expect when you hear a few accounts of something. Uh, you you talk to family members who had Thanksgiving weekend together. And they give you their accounts. It's not like one, one of them is telling you the truth and the other one's lying, but you'll hear some pretty different perspectives 
on what what did in fact happen, but how it was experienced by them, the frameworks that they're bringing to those experiences um, have a tremendous impact on how we narrate. Now, that I want to distinguish very carefully from saying, you know, that everybody's got their own truth or something. That That's not what I'm saying. Um, distinctions between truth and falsehood, between true and false, are still meaningful distinctions in in what I'm describing. But, but what I'm describing also acknowledges that the question of true versus false is not relative to abstract statements. It is relative to actual comments made by real human beings. And they are always made from particular places in particular contexts with particular frameworks in place um, for, for those comments. Um, when I first started, when I was in grad school, it was very interesting to me. Um, I was working with a guy named Richard Rorty at the time, and, and he was one of the sort of late postmodern type thinkers. And, and I was reading Foucault and Derrida and Heidegger and those people and impenetrable stuff in which I needed a lot of help. But, but, you know, where, where they were sort of helping the modern mind recognize the perspectives that are at play and, and, and recognizing the, the subtleties of language and, and, and the ways that language isn't, language and true statements are not just shaped by the stuff we talk about. They are shaped by the, by the communities of discourse that are doing the talking. It was interesting to me. Part of why that all resonated and was as fascinating as it was to me was that I had read the gospel so much. And, and that I re- recognize scripture already has this kind of thing built into it. Same with the Kings and the Chronicles accounts in the Old Testament, that, that these are fascinating aspects of biblical literature and, and resonates curiously with some of this, what I think has been really perceptive critique with regard to hermeneutics and discourse um, in, in the past century or whatever. That was a long wordy answer. I don't, did I come anywhere near addressing your question? It's kind of what I thought you were getting at, but I wanted to, yeah. to clarify. And yeah, I mean, I work a lot with narratives in my own say, research. So we always talk about, you know, it's just a piece of the story. And even sometimes that piece changes as you retell it, you know, or you remember, yeah. you speak into reality things you didn't remember initially. So right. I, I think it's a really interesting point to look at in that and to kind of add that lens of, yeah, and this this actually is because it was told by a different person at a different point in time. It doesn't straight up mean right away. Mm-hmm. We assume it's not true. So, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Kind of a quick question off of that. Could you could that same analogy be applied to like the different points? Say, I guess in the Gospels and in Acts where it's like you see like the repents and be baptized kind of like a similar um similar instances where that like you could easily like um maybe like tie those two together for like what is salvation could that like be a similar like issue of like the the language that's being used 
Um, does that make, does that make sense? I'm not, I'm not sure what specific kinds of, uh, issues or tensions or whatever you're referring to. What, what are you going after? Um, let's see. Just check. Like, like, I've heard one, um, One thing like, I feel like I've heard is like uh, I believe it's in uh, Acts two where it's like right as the church is formed, it's like all right, re- uh, repent and be baptized. And if it's like talking about um, whether like a lot of people feel like uh, could you could look at that passage and like uh, all right, yeah, is baptism necessary for salvation? Just be, like based off of like a, a statement like that. I see, I, I kind of maybe see a similarity between like how it's talked about in the gospels about whether Jesus was coming in or, or leaving in Jericho. Um, so I, I guess in my case, is, is that, could I use that same analogy with, um, with other things that are said? Like perhaps there's bigger context to why something is said the way it is. Right. Yeah, the larger context, definitely. I'm not sure I would use my analogy on the Jericho thing for what you're talking about. I, what, if I'm hearing you correctly on something like, the, if you will, the evolution of baptism in, um, in, in this whole story, John the Baptist, Jesus, the sect of the Nazarene, the emergence of the Christian community and church. Um, I, I think you, you've got to do some work through there to see practices and um, ways of thinking about practices develop. And, and it's okay for them to develop. And it's okay for there to be um, some range of practices that make it a little tricky for us to nail it down. Um, I mean, even baptism is a pretty good example of that. How, how was a baptism practiced? Who, who were the recipients of baptism? Was baptism perceived in the early church as a continuation of circumcision or wasn't it? What kind of theological framework would have framed the thinking about that sacrament, and one could say the same about uh, the practice of the Lord's Supper as it emerged. Um, how was that done? Where and how? Um, and, and if nothing else, that's where it teaches us, I think, some genuine humility before Scripture. Um, I, I know what I think on a couple of those questions, and I hope my, my thinking is well-informed biblically. But I'll tell you, I stay pretty humble about it and, and want to be, um, sort of gracious and understanding toward other people's views. I, I find it amazing that Paul, the, the evangelistic missionary apostle who is seeing conversions and a lot of them writes to the Corinthian church and says something to the effect of, uh, let's see, I, I think I baptized so-and-so and so-and-so. Um, 
uh, but I'm not sure. And did I baptize anybody else? And I go, really? You really? You, you can't remember who you baptized or whether you baptized? And we're talking about a bunch of people now coming into this church. And I go, whatever, whatever the right view of baptism is, I want to keep a certain humility before it. And so I think on that, I don't see that as the same kind of thing as the Jericho narrative question. I see it as, as, as a, a, an understanding and a, if you will, a theology unfolding. And it, and it's happening in, in, at many points with regard to understanding of the work of Christ, with an understanding of the Trinity, an understanding of the work of the Spirit and the coming of the Spirit and the fullness of the Spirit, an understanding of sacraments, an understanding of what it means to be a member of a church, of, mm-hmm. of the church of Jesus Christ. And, and we are moving from a Jewish sect of the Nazarene, as it was, was understood, to becoming this eventually global movement and kingdom. Yeah. Humility is probably a good indication of everything we're talking about, (laughs) including reading those narratives um, that we were looking at. Yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll test that too. I'll I'll join that, that club. Yeah. 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 Quick question, Richard. We, when we first started, we were talking about Matthew being written in the perspective of Matthew's argument is that Christ, is, that Jesus is the, the Christ, right? I kind of thought of that when, when I'm reading his version of Mary's washing. She, she, for me, when I see someone getting anointed with oil, it brings back the Old Testament uh scriptures that talk about David and the kings of Israel being having their heads anointed with oil. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if Matthew emphasized the head there mm-hmm. for that reason versus you know uh Mark talking about the feet because he was trying to persuade a Jewish audience that right. Jesus was in fact the, the Christ. Yeah, and I think you are onto something there. It's interesting also, uh, for instance, it struck me just in this reading, um, this week, the initial statement, I think it's in the Matthew 17 passage, somewhere in there, um, where Jesus says he's going to die. Matthew is the only of the four gospels that says, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Mm-hmm. That, that there is that, that kind of orientation, um, in what he's doing. And I think you're right. Um, that Matthew, that this could be a, a specific reason why Matthew would emphasize that anointing of the head, because we are getting both the messianic anointing and the, um, anointing of contrition. Mm. Um, I'm looking to see, I think math, I think Mark follows Matthew on this, um, Mark 14. Um, yeah, pours it on his head in, in Mark as well. And then in John is where you get the pouring on the feet. And then, and then Luke, as you mentioned. Yeah, yeah I, I, honestly, I'd love to follow through more on that, 
on my thesis, frankly, that, that Matthew's got this orientation to the gospel. Um, I, I emphasize it a lot through the first 16 chapters or so. Um, and I think we pick it up again in the final week, but I, but I ought to do more work and we ought to do more work in thinking that thesis through in these chapters from 17 to 21. Anyway, as always, I enjoyed it. Got to run. Good. Thanks, Bill. Hope to see you again next week. See you guys. Thanks. I got to go too. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. See you, Caleb. See you, Pierce.